This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. And this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. Today's show, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. We're going to hear about the wild, wondrous world of parasites, from germs to worms, with biologist Marlene Zook. We'll learn how some of these vermin may not be so bad after all, and why antibacterial products, on the other hand, may not be so good after all. We'll learn about aphids. Yeah, aphids, those little pests that suck on your roses. We'll learn about aphids who take one for the team. Mice with a feline death wish and the origins of sex. Plus, parasite music with Daniel Kahn and the painted bird. That's all ahead. Let's start with a story. You're at work one day and you get this unnatural hankering. You want to go for a swim which is really weird because you hate the water, can't even dog paddle, but you can't help yourself. It's like someone else is in control. Just like that, you're out the door and headed for the coast. It's a gorgeous day at the beach. Kids at play, people sunning themselves, but you hardly notice. You're like a person possessed. You just gotta get to that water stat. So you march to the shore, ignoring the beachgoers, the guy with the metal detector, the guy drinking from the paper bag. And before you know it, you're ripping off your clothes and diving in. And the water's washing over you, you're feeling kind of dizzy, and there's this strange pressure building inside of you. You feel like you're going to explode, and oh my God, all of a sudden your body rips open and a giant worm pops out. And the worm swims away, leaving the lifeless husk of your body tossing in the surf. Now, this is not the plot of some gross-out midnight movie, so far as I know, but it is the true story, with some creative license, of what happens to a cricket when it's infected with the parasitic horsehair worm. See, the worm larva grows up inside the cricket, where it's moist and protected, and meals around the house, until it reaches adulthood. Then it's time to bust out. Now, the worm likes water. It's aquatic, whereas crickets are landlubbers. So what's a worm to do? Well, it somehow takes control of the cricket and compels it to skip down to the nearest pond or stream. The cricket jumps in, the worm wriggles out and goes on its merry way. The cricket is hosed. Tales of such fiendish manipulation abound in parasitology, and they abound in a recent book by evolutionary biologist Marlene Zook. It's called Riddled with Life. Friendly Worms, Ladybug Sex, and the Parasites That Make Us Who We Are. Zook says parasites have been with us almost from the beginning and really have made us who we are, shaping our evolution, our bodies, and maybe even our minds. Marlene Zook spoke to me from Hawaii, where she's studying another cricket-loving parasite, a fly attracted to the cricket's chirp. Marlene Zook, welcome. Thanks a lot for having me. So when were you, um, so to speak, bitten by the parasite bug? (laughs) Um, Well, I've always been interested in unusual animal stories, but probably I got most interested in parasites when I was in graduate school because my um, advisor, the uh, late evolutionary biologist W.D. Hamilton, was well known for somebody who saw parasites in virtually everything, and I think he converted me. 
W.D. Hamilton, you knew him as Bill Hamilton? Yeah. Considered one of the greatest uh, evolutionary thinkers since Darwin? And, and he, he absolutely was. And um, I think one of the reasons that he was so creative is that he applied things that no one had ever thought of applying to new situations. And one of those things was to think about how parasites might be important in a lot of things that had to do with sex. Yeah, and, and we're going to be discussing those ideas, the, the ideas of uh, Bill Hamilton and, and the one you just mentioned, the importance of parasitism to sex, uh, in great detail during this interview. But uh, a couple of background questions first. Sure. Um, what is a parasite? Um, a parasite is most easily defined as an, an organism that gets most or all of its living off of another organism um, without outright killing it, which, which means, in fact, that uh, lots of things like viruses and bacteria can also be considered parasites along with maybe the more traditional category of worms um, or uh, flukes or things like that. So we're talking about really most, most diseases. Well, all, in, all infectious diseases as opposed to, so, so parasites, obviously, when you, you know, if you break your leg, you know, or you, you know, get... Um, Heart disease, uh, you know, you're not necessarily, you know, you're not suffering from an infectious disease, but anything that's caused by another living creature. What do we know about the the origin of parasites? Uh, what's the earliest evidence of parasitism in biology? Well, it seems to me that parasites have been around as long as life itself, and increasingly, people are starting to think that our own cells arose in at least in part because of the infusion of parasites into very early cells so that we have lots of organs in our cells just like we have organs in our bodies um, so we have liver and kidney and so forth in our bodies well our cells have engines that produce energy and you know things that um, actually assist in respiration and so forth and those organs are thought by a lot of people to have arisen as uh, tiny bacteria that penetrated a primordial cell and eventually sort of cross the line between being actually parasitic to being, um, you know, kind of friendly and helpful. We wouldn't be here uh, and able to do what we do if those primordial bacteria hadn't climbed inside of some other early cell and, and taken up residence. Exactly, yeah. How many parasites do we humans typically harbor? That's a hard one to answer in part because although I just gave you a really nice glib definition of a parasite, in actual fact... If you talk about an animal that makes its living off of another being well, what if it does that without really causing harm? Well, it depends what you mean by harm. And so there's kind of a fuzzy line. So our bodies consist of lots and lots and lots of microbial cells in addition to our own cells. And one estimate says that if you counted all the cells on a human body, the microbial cells would outnumber the human cells by a factor of 7 to 10 to 1. So there's far more bacterial and other sorts of microbial cells on and in us than our own cells. Are all of those parasitic? Not at all. Some of them are, most of them are probably either helpful or, you know, just sort of hanging out on us. But the line is really quite blurred. These are mostly intestinal microbes? Intestinal on your skin and your, you know, various orifices. Um, <laughs> So, you know, and, and then there's always that thing about the, the mites on your eyelashes, which you always feel like, or I always feel anyway, like, yeah, right, other people have those. I don't have mites on my eyelashes, thank you very much. <laughs> but you do. Well, I guess I do. Yes, of course I do. <laughs> In fact, you're swarming with, with critters of all Absolutely. kinds. Absolutely. And uh, does that make you feel good or bad? Well, see, I think I've grown to think of it as a good thing because, again, 
it's not one of these, I, I think that in this age of hypervigilance about bacteria, you know, and all these advertisements that are trying to scare us about, you know, getting rid of all the germs in our kitchens and on our countertops and, you know, off of our skin and so forth, we really need to take a step back and remember that, you know, from the very beginning, we evolved with all of these other critters. And even if they do do us harm, removing them wholesale doesn't always have the benefit that we would like. In fact, you, you write in your book, disease is not merely ubiquitous, it is normal, it is natural, it is even essential. Absolutely. I mean, it, and, and it means that if we didn't have some sort of disease or parasite around, um, you know, we tend to, to have negative consequences from this. Um, as people who have been overusing antibiotics and antibacterial, this, that, and the other thing, are starting to find out. You're not a big fan of all these antibacterial soaps, wipes, sprays, kids' toys, etc.? No, I'm not. And actually, I, along with most physicians, think they're completely, they're, they're completely unnecessary is absolutely the case. And the idea is that they may, in fact, do more harm than good. Um, because, again, you know, your system evolved with these things. And if you take them away, it can cause your system to go awry. And scientists are increasingly attributing the rise in asthma and allergies and lots of autoimmune disorders to the absence of these very natural immune stimulants in our lives. Too much of a good thing? Too much cleanliness? Absolutely. And I think some of it is that, you know, we're kind of caught in this bind because, you know, again, if you want to sort of think evolutionarily, say 500 or 1,000 years ago, um, if you had a sort of your general rule of thumb, I am going to make my environment as clean as possible by removing all microorganisms. Well, I guess you didn't know about microorganisms, but I'm going to make my environment as clean as possible, and I'm going to you know, really work hard at this. No matter how hard you worked 500 years ago, you could not remove all these bacteria and other you know, potentially helpful microorganisms because you simply weren't capable of it. And now we have the same rule of thumb, but it's gotten us into a lot of trouble. Now, you're talking about something called the hygiene hypothesis. Yeah, which, um, again, is, is getting increasing acceptance um, among a lot of doctors saying that, you know, look, the reason we're seeing this increase in allergies and asthma and autoimmune disorders um, like Crohn's disease and a lot of inflammatory bowel disorders is that it's, it's not so much, you know, pollution or something that we're doing as a modern society. It's something we're not doing anymore, which is, you know, allowing ourselves and our children to be exposed to some, you know, parasites and pathogens. And some of those parasites and pathogens were not necessarily good for you, as I said, but you take them away and it's not so great either. Now, allergies, asthma, inflammatory bowel disease, the things you just mentioned, those are, are mostly diseases found in, um, in advanced technological societies where, where things tend to be very clean. They're not found so much among people who are otherwise considered disadvantaged, uh, medically speaking. Absolutely. And it's, it's a very interesting thing. And so, so sometimes these are called diseases of the advantaged or, you know, diseases of affluence or uh, something like that. But you can actually track the rise in things like asthma and, you know, as um, uh, urbanization increases and as um, uh, people start having all these ac access to all these things like antibacterial soaps and so forth, their rise in um, uh, autoimmune disorders also skyrockets. And it's not pollution, which is what people thought initially. There was this great study in um, the uh, former East and West Germany, in which a scientist thought, okay, well, I'm going to compare children's asthma rates in former um, East and West Germany because it certainly seems to me that the medical care was so much worse 
um, in former East Germany that uh, those children should be, you know, worse off, and she was, she was studying um, asthma. And in fact, um, uh, and also the pollution was worse and so forth, and she found exactly the reverse, that um, the children in the supposedly cleaner environment suffered far more from asthma and allergies. Now, we should say probably that the, um, this hypothesis is just that. It's not proven in any way yet. And, and I think that it's also the case that we're never, and certainly it's not that all asthma, and no one would say it's not that all asthma is caused by um, insufficient exposure to um, bacteria or um, bacterial products, and it's never going to be the case that you're going to be able to cure asthma by giving people bacteria. You know, it's not that simple. But the idea is that your immune system responds to things in your environment, and if and it's, it's, it has evolved to do that, and if you don't give it those things in, you, in your environment, then your immune system goes a little haywire. How might this mechanism work? I mean, how might it be that exposure to, uh, to uh, foreign substances, to bacteria and so on, help us avoid becoming asthmatic or allergic? You can think of it as um, a kind of job training. That, in other words, if your immune system gets trained to have a certain sort of employment, then that's what it does, and that's what it spends its time on. If it has nothing to do, then it, it's all, I mean, this is a little anthropomorphic, but it's almost like <laughs> it casts about for something to attack, because attacking things in the body is its job. Um, and if all that's there are these, you know, super clean, um, you know, s- cells of the human body, then it's, it's just not going to re- know how to regulate itself. So maybe letting kids play in the dirt is not such a bad idea. I think letting kids play in the dirt is just fine. I mean, you know, obviously there's dirt and there's dirt. But, you know, again, the, you have less incidence of asthma and allergies when kids have siblings, for example, which means that their you know, children are such great little vectors, as every parent knows. You know, they're always bringing home stuff. And so the more, in fact, the more cold a child has um, as a very young, uh, as an infant or a toddler, the more colds they have then the less likely they are to have allergies and asthma later, which may be scant consolation to the parents of, you know, a toddler with the stuff he knows. But, you know, it really does help. And uh, having pets is a good thing. If kids with pets tend to grow up with fewer allergies, which a lot of people are surprised at. Uh, Rural environments, fewer allergies. But this is not an argument against the use of vaccinations with children. Absolutely not. Thanks for asking, actually. Um, I'm a big fan of vaccination. I think that it has made an, there's probably no public health um, measure that has had a bigger effect on our well-being as a, as a society than vaccination. Um, and if we don't vaccinate, then sure, um, you know, you could argue that there might be benefits to getting certain types of diseases, but you kill an awful lot of people in the process, and that's just not something that I at least am willing to live with. You say at uh, some points that there there is some belief among scientists that even exposure to nasty things like um, parasitic worms may not be all bad? Absolutely. And so this is a perfect case of how it's not that having parasites is good for you, but that not having them can be bad for you. Uh, And so people, of course, um, a long time ago used to have um, at least, you know, low levels of a lot of different types of intestinal worms, things like pinworms, which are, you know, an annoyance, um, or even things like nematodes, um, you know, roundworms, that can be serious, especially if you're malnourished or um, in growing children. Again, they have some bad effects, but it's starting to look like if you remove them completely, you start increasing the incidence of inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's. And there's a um, 
gastroenterologist at Tufts University named uh, Joel Weinstock, who's come up with what I think is this tremendously clever and extremely evolutionary uh, cure or at least treatment for Crohn's disease, one of these autoimmune um, diseases of the bowel, in which he actually administers um, worm eggs to people and it ameliorates their symptoms. I wanted to work in some good parasite stories uh, in the course of this interview, and, and I have one I'd like you to tell. They all sound a bit like Aesop's fables. I call this one the spider and the wasp. You know, <laughs> you know what one I'm referring to? Sure, sure. There's a certain kind of parasitic wasp that's very tiny, and it parasitizes spiders. Now, ordinarily, you know, spiders are living their own little spider life and spinning their webs, and their webs always look the same, and they have these proper kind of orb shapes. But in this case, if the wasp parasitizes the spider, it actually compels the spider to spin a very different type of web. And it's a very well-constructed web. It looks a little like a circus tent. And it's got kind of a roof on the top of it and then some um, underhanging parts. And then what happens is that the, the uh, spider, um, which is infested with this, uh, with this wasp, um, sort of dies and the uh, wasp bursts forth, and it's able to complete its life cycle in this completely different type of web that allows it to shelter itself during its development. And so it's as though as its last act, the spider built this very elaborate construction for the, the very thing that's killing it. What a horrible story. Oh, really? I think it's kind of cool. <laughs> 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 this is not rare in the parasite world, this idea of mind control. No, and in fact, increasingly, people are even suggesting that, so, you know, we're all okay with the idea, or not okay, but we've all accepted the idea that parasites can affect their host's um, biology in terms of, you know, internal organs or, you know, internal systems. The idea that parasites affect our nervous systems and therefore our brains and therefore our behavior is a little harder to take and yet there's tons of examples of it. You know, a lot of this uh, sounds like, and I guess has been the inspiration for a tremendous amount of uh, science fiction. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, Alien and lots of other more um, obscure um, science fiction stories are really obsessed, as it were, with the idea that there are other beings controlling what we do. And they're not wrong. Oh, they're certainly not wrong. Um, and the question is, you know, would you know it if uh, would you know it if they were? I mean, this 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 leads to you know one of those. Oh my God, I'm being controlled by something outside my um, my own body, and I don't even know uh, I don't even know whether whether that's true or not. Um, and so, yeah, there's lots of examples of that. It goes back at least, I think, to the vampire genre because uh, that is a bloodborne disease, vampirism. After you're bitten by the vampire, you become one and and infect someone else. I mean, I mean it, it is interesting to speculate, I mean, just why people find those stories so compelling and so frightening. I mean, I, I, you know, one of the things I point out in the book is that we really have a relationship with our parasites. You know, they are, for better or worse, part of our family. And, you know, this is why I think that we, we shouldn't take the siege mentality of, oh, my God, you know, we've got to get rid of them at all costs and we, you know, can't, you know, we have to keep them at arm's length, that we need to recognize that for better or worse, and sometimes it is worse, they are part of us and they're part of what we do. And then, well, you know, control issues come up in relationships. Who's in charge? Who gets to decide? What happens when? And so in that sense, you know, we don't like the idea that some of the time they get to decide. 
Well, there's, as you tell it, there is, uh, at least among evolutionary theorists these days, there is a story of evolution that really describes a kind of back and forth arms race uh, between hosts and parasites. Yeah, you know, parasites and their hosts can evolve back and forth at each other. So it's, it's really different than, say, the way you evolve in response to, um, I don't know, the climate. So if it's hot and um, you evolve, you know, let's say you're a turtle and you evolve a desiccation-resistant skin and um, your shell is thick and you can really live in, you know, the desert, the fact that you've done that doesn't make the world get any hotter. But if you evolve a mechanism for getting around a parasite, let's say your lungs are more um, resistant to being you know, invaded by some kind of worm or something, the worm in turn is able to evolve a way to get around that defense. Well, then that's going to exert pressure for you to get around the way it got around your defense and so on and so forth. And so this can become an ongoing process. Whereas if you're responding to something in what we call the abiotic or non-living environment, once it's done, it's done. The sun doesn't get hotter because you evolved a way to resist drying out. Okay, so it's not reciprocal. Right. And with, but with parasites, of course, it's reciprocal. And, of course, it can be endlessly reciprocal. And this co what we call a co-evolutionary relationship can result in um, long, long series of evolutionary changes in both parties. I think what's, uh, what might be striking for a lot of people reading your book uh, is the degree to which that back and forth, that uh, ongoing contest, may have, in the minds of some evolutionary theorists, given rise to many of the things we consider fundamental in the biological world, such as sex. Oh, absolutely. My, my students always um, uh, think it's like a trick question if I say, you know, what do you think is the most important question about sex? Um, they, of course, think that the most important question about sex is who are they going to have it with um, or when. Uh, but, but actually, that's not true. The most important question about sex is why does it exist? And sex is very puzzling because from an evolutionary standpoint, if you just reproduced um, without having to have sex, if you could just clone yourself, as some organisms certainly do, you just produce um, uh, offspring without having to mate, then you are putting way more copies of your genes into the following generations than if you have to find a mate of the opposite sex and you know each of you is donating only half the genetic material and so you're kind of losing out on your ability to perpetuate you know half of your genes every time so why then is sexual reproduction so ubiquitous i mean everything has sex it's not just people well uh, well the, the most primitive organisms the bacteria and so on don't really have sex ooh sometimes they do and under certain circumstances and it's really interesting what those circumstances are so they they actually do something we don't really call it um sex sometimes we call it conjugation doesn't that sound really racy mm. um <laughs> Uh, they don't necessarily have males and females, but they will sometimes exchange genetic material. And just like with us, you have to ask yourself, well, why in the world would you bother to do that? The answer seems to be to avoid parasites. Why would it ever be important to engage in sexual reproduction? Well, if you have sex, then your children are different from each parent, sometimes really different, as many parents have noted. Whereas if you don't have sex, your children look exactly like you. Well, why is that a problem? If, you know, you think you're great, why can't you just keep perpetuating yourself? As some organisms do, just and copy some themselves. Or, some organisms do. Well, the answer seems to be that the big drawback is if you keep perpetuating yourself, then that arms race between host and parasite grinds to a halt because the parasite can win. 
because it's evolved whatever uh, way of getting around your defense mechanism it evolves, and then you can't evolve back at it. So your children are going to be susceptible to the exact same diseases that you're susceptible to, and if those diseases have evolved a mechanism for getting around your defense mechanisms, you're just sunk. No, no. So giving up half of your genetic contribution to the next generation is worth it if, in fact, you can manage to have offspring, some of which are going to be able to survive their onslaught of parasites. So sex is a way of changing things up genetically and producing variations in offspring with the uh, hope that some of those variants will throw the parasites off their game and uh, survive, right? Right, exactly. Now, why give parasites all the credit? I mean, don't we need variation just to be prepared for any change in, in our environment, which could include predators, parasites, weather, um, and, and a million other things? Well, the predators you can lump in with parasites, but they're not going to exert the same sort of specific selection pressure because most pre predators can eat multiple things, and so they don't tend to have as specific um, uh, coevolutionary response. So if you have, um, you know, deer that get faster, um, yes, it's possible that the wolves will get faster as well, and so, you know, having kind of deer that can evade the wolf in a different way would be helpful. But wolves can also eat other stuff. So, you know, they might start eating something besides deer, and then that, you know, then the pressure on having something other than just fleetness is, is not so great. And with the, the non-living environment, with something like the weather, once you've evolved a mechanism for dealing with, um, you know, increased heat, it's not going to get hotter because of that. So you're not constantly engaged in this very rapid-fire race. I see. I mean, though climate does change, and though... Oh, sure. I mean, but, and, that's, and that's over the long term, and that's going to exert selection, sure. But every generation... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because remember, most parasites and pathogens have extremely short generation times, so they're multiplying, you know, 50, 100, 1,000 times to every one of our generations, which means that keeping up with them is really, really critical. Most of our predators have roughly the same, well, humans don't really have any predators, but most animals' predators have roughly the same generation times that they do. It's certainly not this tremendous imbalance. So you're saying that, uh, that the best explanation of sex, which evolved at some point in the history of life on Earth, mm -hmm. is to outrun the parasites. Yeah, I mean, there's also ideas that have to do with um, getting rid of deleterious mutations, um, you know, sort of clearing out your DNA, as it were. But most scientists accept that, at least in part, it's getting rid of parasites. And not just the fact of sex, but also a lot of the things that go along with sex, I guess, like uh, mating rituals, uh, sexual ornamentation, um, strutting one's stuff in order to attract a mate. Uh, now, what's the parasitic explanation of all of that? Yeah, well, so you think, okay, everybody's really concerned with getting the best mate possible. And for females in particular, it's thought that that makes a big difference because in females, especially in mammals, they're putting a lot into the offspring. They're, they're going to have a limited number of opportunities to reproduce. So, you know, having the best mate that you can get is going to be very important. Okay, what makes a best mate? Well... And really, this isn't just, you know, an idea that I have because I'm sort of obsessed with parasites. <laughs> the best mate is going to be somebody that's going to be healthy and is going to pass on the genes for being healthy to your children. So, and, and again, that's just because parasites are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. There are some animals for, you know, sure, foraging for food is important, but some animals really don't have that hard a time with it. Let's say you're 
um, eating grass and or something else that's you know really abundant, well, it's just not that big a deal to find a mate that can eat grass. Anybody can eat grass. Who cares? But really, finding a mate that can resist disease is always extremely important. And resisting disease is going to be something that you know your children are always going to need to do, regardless of whether there's other minor changes in the environment. So I and at least some other scientists think that one of the big pressures behind the evolution of things like, you know, flashy things like peacock tails and um, courtship rituals and things like that has to do with showing off specifically to a mate, I'm free of disease, I'm resistant to parasites, um, you know, I can give that to your children. And how does a peacock tail or some of the other fancy plumage that male birds tend to have um, tell the female that, uh, you know, I have very few parasites, I'm very good at resisting disease and so on? It looks like all those traits, for one thing, are costly in terms of the ability to produce them. And it looks like if you infect males with parasites, as we did in an experiment I did uh, a number of years ago with red jungle fowl, which are the ancestors of domestic chickens, and they have, I mean, chickens are kind of unappreciated, but really a nice rooster is, is quite a thing to behold. And so we think that uh, from, as from the results of our experiments, if you infect them with parasites, the chicks have a harder time developing um, as they grow up into roosters, they have a harder time developing all these beautiful, fancy characters. They can manage to grow up to a reasonable size, so it's not just that sick is sick. It's that, boy, dealing with your parasites really means that it takes a hit on the size of your comb or the beauty of your plumage or, you know, the length of your tail. So females can use those traits as ways to assess whether or not a male is disease-resistant. It, in fact, it turns out that bright coloration and mating songs and other kinds of sexual displays are, are, are disproportionately affected by parasites. So a good flashy show put on by a male is actually um, a pretty good indicator that they're carrying a low parasite load. Is that right? right? That's right. And so, you know, male birds sing in the spring to attract a mate and to declare their territory, and uh, they'll often sing a number of different songs, and we call that a repertoire size. So they'll have lots of different songs that they put together. And in at least some birds, the larger the repertoire, the more resistant to disease they are. And this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. Today we are talking about parasites with evolutionary biologist Marlene Zook. I, well, I am your host, Robert Polly. We'll be back with more from that conversation after this very germane musical intermezzo from Daniel Kahn and the Painted Burn, Bird, that is, a band based in Berlin. Nature has a way of really touching you inside It's a lesson everyone must learn It ain't no use to try to run away or try to hide Everyone must finally take a turn You may be a person who believes it is your right To be free and independent to the core But once you learn the ways of these exotic parasites You'll see that independence is a bore. Toxoplasma gondii is a microscopic bug who carries all its genius in its genes. It may be on your fingers or the fibers of your rug, but to this bug there's more than it may seem. When Toxoplasma gets inside the system of a mouse, it doesn't make him feel that he's unwell. It gives the mouse the energy to run around the house. 
fact, it makes the mouse become attracted to the cat. He doesn't show a single sign of fright. For Toxoplasma seems to know precisely where it's at. It is a very cunning parasite. The cat then turns the mouse into a ghost. And Toxoplasma joins its natural host. The cat. Now you are living as a The lancet liver fluke lives in the liver of a cow and lays its eggs inside the cow's manure. There it starts an odyssey which somehow will allow This tiny worm to work its way back to her The fluke-infested feces is then eaten by a snail Who turns the larval worm into a cyst Excreted by the mollusk in a slimy yellow trail But the snail is only first on this fluke's list The adolescent fluke worm is then eaten by an ant And it lives a while an independent worm but then it does a special thing that other insects can't It infiltrates a group of the ant's nerves The ant then spends its daily life as normal as before Working in the colony all day But every night the parasite residing at its core Manipulates it in the strangest ways By the moon the ant will climb the tallest blade of grass And sink its mandibles into the tip and there he will be paralyzed until the night has passed When back into the colony he'll slip And this will happen every single night Until a chewing cow will come to bite We described three parasites, all of whom are categorized, at least on Wikipedia, um, with other parasites who manipulate the nervous system of their host into sometimes suicidal behavior. And I had heard of the first one and was fascinated by it. And then I was sitting in a Paris airport at 8 in the morning and I read a short story in Harper's. Uh, written from the perspective of a tapeworm. Beautiful little story, a bit of a love story, where it really, when it was expelled from its human, it felt heartbroken. <laughs> that there was a loving symbiotic relationship going on that, that it felt very betrayed. <laughs> and how often do we feel that same way when we're ejected from a 
some sort of a dependent relationship. You know, in independence is a myth. Nobody is really independent, even a hermit. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to get into the mind of these, these little, sometimes single cellular creatures who uh, seem to really know how to live off of somebody else. And maybe we should learn from them and not just hate them. After all, one third of humans are carriers of the first parasite in our song, Mr. Toxoplasma Gondi. So, this song is about you. And that was Dan Kahn of Daniel Kahn and the Painted Bird. The song was from their most recent CD, Partisans and Parasites. And we'll be hearing more from Dan Kahn in a future show. We'll hear a lot more about one of the parasites he mentioned, Toxoplasma, as our conversation with Marlene Zook continues in just a moment. Support for the 7th Avenue Project is from Capitola Book Cafe. Mary Roach discusses her book, Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex. That's Tuesday, April 21st at 7.30 p.m. at Capitola Book Cafe. Details are available at 462-4415. Now back to my conversation with evolutionary biologist Marlene Zook, author of Riddled with Life, Friendly Worms, Ladybug Sex, and the Parasites that Make Us Who We Are. Now, you're in Hawaii right now studying one particular parasite-host relationship. Yeah. Tell us about that one. We've been working on this for quite some time. It's a great example of um, the influence of parasites on um, host behavior uh, in sort of a, in a broad geographic scale. The cricket I work on is um, sometimes called the Pacific Field Cricket or the Polynesian Field Cricket, and it occurs in northern Australia and the Pacific Islands like Fiji and Tahiti. But only in Hawaii, it's parasitized by a fly that listens for the calling song of the males, which they produce when they're hunting, when they're looking for mates. And so they produce that song to look for females, but they also attract the attention of a parasitic fly. The fly kind of dive bombs the males, drops larvae on them, and then the larvae burrow in, and this really is like the movie Alien. Um, they occupy the entire body cavity with this great pulsating white maggot. Um, it's, it is just exactly as gross as it sounds. Um, I've dissected hundreds, probably thousands of these things, and I'm never, I never fail to be shocked when I, when I find one. Um, and then the maggot eventually bursts out of the cricket and kills it in the process. So the male's really faced with a dilemma. The more he calls, the better, because that's going to make it more likely he attracts females. But the more he calls, the more he exposes himself to this deadly parasitoid. And I'm very interested in how conflicting evolutionary pressures resolve themselves. And so, so what happens when this kind of thing goes on um, in in life. And most recently, we've made a really exciting discovery, um, which is that on one island on Kauai, um, where we'd always seen the most parasitoids of all, 90% um, of those males now show a mutation in their wings that renders them silent. But, but if the males go, go silent, can they get a mate? Ah, yes. And so that was our immediate question, too. Um, I, when I first found this, I was just absolutely flabbergasted. It, was, it really was one of those you know, nature just throwing you a complete curveball sort of things. And um, so then we have, that was our immediate question. And so we've been spending time doing uh, experiments 
with that, that's exactly what I'm here on, uh, in Hawaii doing. Um, it looks like what's happening is that there's, I said that there were 90% of the males that could, um, uh, that showed this mutation in their wings and couldn't call. There's still 10% or so that can. And what it looks like is that the 90% of males hang around the 10% that are still able to call and encounter females that are attracted that way. So it's like they're what are called satellites and they're um, taking advantage of the few callers that, that remain and then the females that are attracted to them will run into some of these uh, silent males. But the fly will hear the song and kill off those those singing crickets, no? Well, you know, so this is, I'm just, I can't wait to find out what happens with this because that's one possibility, that they'll just go extinct and that'll be the end of it and we'll be done. Another more intriguing possibility is that we could get kind of cycles in the populations of both the flies and the crickets. So there's a very few number of callers that are out there. So you would imagine that that would cause a decrease in the number of flies. If, there, if the flies just, you know, but through sheer luck, don't manage to find the, the callers that are there. But those callers are very attractive to the females and there aren't very many out there so that should produce selection for calling and if there's not so many flies out there because the flies have died off because there aren't that many hosts for them then the number of callers will start to increase but then as the number of callers starts to increase and the number of what we call the flat wings those silent males that can't produce the call decrease then the flies will start to increase and the whole thing could start happening again so it's what we call frequency-dependent selection, and I'm really curious to see if that's what's going to happen. So I, I really feel like I'm in the middle of watching evolution in action, and it's really exciting. So a kind of pendulum going back and forth, back and forth. Potentially. I mean, that, that is only one hypothesis, but, you know, we'll just have to see what happens. You know, you have some examples in your book of some rather amazing um, hypothetical adaptations among uh, creatures large and small to, to parasites. Um, one of them that struck me, and this is speculative, I, don't, I, I think you'd agree this isn't in any way proven, but um, aphids, who are parasitized by a kind of wasp, at least some people believe, uh, in order to protect their, their fellows, if they're attacked by this wasp, will, will commit suicide rather than become uh, carriers of the infection. That's right. And so the idea of suicide has actually intrigued evolutionary biologists for a long time because, of course, selection should not have produced an individual that will get rid of itself. Um, and so, you know, people have questioned whether there could be such a thing as adaptive suicide in non-human animals. Um, and that's one of the examples is that, you know, if in fact this, and so the key here is that the aphids are surrounded by individuals to whom they're very closely related. And so if you share a lot of your genes with other individuals around you and you sacrifice yourself, then in the long term, your genes are going to get more perpetuated than if you didn't sacrifice yourself. Right. Now, now an aphid is a pretty tiny and pretty dumb-looking little thing. I mean, how, <laughs> they, how just, they just look like little blobs, just little <laughs> kind of sesame seed-shaped, you know, like or, or raindrop-shaped blobs. And and they're herded like cows by by ants who huh? actually uh, har huh? harvest, I guess, the uh, the secretions of the aphids. But but explain to us how could. Uh, a bug this small and, and presumably without much intelligence know to uh, martyr itself for the sake of its tribe? See, that's a great question because one of the things that I love about studying insects is that you realize that it does not take a big brain to do big things. That evolution acts not on consciousness but on sort of the manifestation of your genes. 
it doesn't matter why you're doing it. It doesn't matter whether you've been able to think of it. As long as you get a variation in behavior, then selection will act. And if that causes the genes responsible for that behavior to increase, then it increases. If not, then it doesn't. You know, so, so you imagine that you know, a ton of, you know, back in history, a ton of aphids got infected with um, this parasite. And some of them, through sheer chance, um, responded to that infection by loosening their grip on the plant they were on and dropping to the ground. Which That's is, how they commit suicide. Yeah, which is how they commit suicide. Um, I mean, we're the ones who call it commit suicide, but, but they just <laughs> happen to have that reaction. I mean, there's all kinds of reactions you could have to being parasitized. You could, you know, stand up taller, you could crouch down, and, or maybe, you know, you could loosen your grip on the plant. Well, if the relatives of the individuals that responded to being parasitized that way survive better, then the genes for doing that are going to survive better. The aphid doesn't think of anything. So, so um, for people who see such intricate behavior patterns, or, or to take another example, that, uh, that wasp we talked about earlier that actually seems to control the behavior of a spider to make a certain kind of web that's good for the wasp and not good for the spider, mm -hmm. people looking at that, some of them might say, wow, that, that's evidence of a, uh, a designer for sure. Oh, I mean, it, it looks like malevolence. It really does. <laughs> but you're saying nature just throws a lot of possibilities at the wall and sees what sticks. Absolutely. Yes. That's, in fact, that's a great way to put it. I may borrow that if I, if I, if I may. And so it's, it is truly extraordinary how you can end up with what looks like, you know, love or malevolence or, you know, charity or any one of a number of sophisticated things. And yet... You know, come on, these spiders have a nervous system that could fit on the end of a pin. There is no way that they are experiencing the same sort of cognitive, you know, stuff that humans are. So this, it, and again, this is why I love studying insects and other invertebrates, because they really defy your ability to anthropomorph. You know, you just can't look at them and say, oh, aha, it's thinking this or that. It can't be thinking this or that. It's just not physically possible. So to take another case, let's say a certain virus, um, a certain virus has a mutation that causes it to irritate the sinuses of the host. Right. Making that host sneeze. Right. Thus infecting lots of other people, thus propagating that virus. You'll right. see more of those viruses, not because the virus is smart. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and it's just... And have, have there not, you know, and so you have to understand that the successful ones are resting on the wreckage of thousands and thousands and thousands of unsuccessful ones that have died out along the way. I'd like to hear another parasite story. I'm, I call this one cat and mouse. This is a, a, a parasite called toxoplasmosis. And oh, yeah. Tell me that this, one. This, this, is the, this is the pregnant women uh, get to get out of cleaning the litter box um, parasite. Um, so I'm sure you know that uh, pregnant that women are told not to clean the litter box um, of if they have a cat when they're pregnant, and the reason is to limit um, their exposure to a one-celled parasite called Toxoplasma, which um, can produce um, bad effects on the fetus. So you know they're told to to limit their exposure or to try and avoid getting infected by it. Now Toxoplasma is a natural um, parasite of both cats and their usual prey, which would be a rat or mouse. And it turns out that, uh, and, it, and it has to go into both of them. So to complete the life cycle, the toxoplasma has to go from a rat or mouse into a cat, and then the cat excretes the parasite, which goes into the soil, and then it gets picked up by the rat or mouse. Well, 
from the standpoint of the parasite, it's going to be in an advantage if the rat or mouse it's in gets eaten, and not all rats or mice do. So what would increase the likelihood of being eaten if you're a rat or mouse? Well, it would be not being afraid of cats. And indeed, rats and mice that are infected with toxoplasma don't exhibit the same avoidance behavior of areas that smell like cats or that have been frequented by cats that normal healthy rats or mice do. So the behavior of the rat or mouse has been altered by the parasite. How does a single-celled parasite, toxoplasma, actually change mice from cat-fearing to uh, cat-indifferent? People are still actually working on I mean, That's an excellent question. People are still working on it. Where exactly does the toxoplasma influence, you know, what neurotransmitter, what nerve cell, what part of the brain? But, you know, it all has to come down to that. You know, we like to call our emotions very much, you know, sort of part of our spirits or part of something that's intangible. But at some point, you're going to have to be able to make it tangible. Now, it doesn't stop with cats and mice, does it? I mean, toxoplasmosis, the disease that's caused by this parasite, toxoplasma, is found in a lot of human beings. Absolutely. In fact, the rates are quite high in parts of the world where um, uh, it exists a lot in the soil or it can also occur in meat. Um, and uh, uh, so it's been uh, studied by um, a researcher in um, the Czech Republic. And uh, he's got some pretty interesting theories about this. I'm not sure I go along with this, but um, the idea is that if you test people and you can, you can see whether they show traces of having been infected with this, uh, with toxoplasma before, and if you test people, um, you can actually see whether or not they've had it. He says that if you've had it, you have a different personality, you score differently on personality tests than if you haven't had it. Um, and uh, there's also some uh, evidence that if you look at people who have been involved in traffic accidents, um, and not like fender benders where somebody's rear-ended you, but actually, you know, you've been careless and you've ended up walking out in traffic, or, you know, you've run a red light or something, uh, that those people tend to be more um, likely to show signs of having been infected with toxoplasma, which he links to the, the fearlessness of the mice. You know, so in other words, it, there's something about the way it affects the vertebrate nervous system that makes vertebrates take more risks, as it were. There are reports that up to maybe a third of the world's population may have this parasite. Yeah. On the other hand, this may be a consolation to listeners who are starting to freak out about this, that um, one of the signs uh, that was associated in the personality test with women who were infected was that they were more warm-hearted. I'm actually not quite sure what that <laughs> means, but, um, you know, who knows? Maybe it's good for you. But, but people have speculated, and you allow yourself a little speculation in the book, as to how personalities, even cultures, might have been influenced by organisms like this that, that, that may mess with our minds. Right, and they may mess with our minds inadvertently. You know, so certainly toxo, you know, we are not a natural host for toxoplasma because cats, by and large, um, do not eat people. Uh, and so you know, there's, no, um, there's no selective force acting to make us do different things. There's no advantage to the toxoplasma. Um, once it gets into humans, it's, it's doomed. It's a dead end for, for the toxoplasmosis because it's not then going to be able to perpetuate itself in other animals. Um, whether other parasites that are natural to humans change us in ways that make it more likely for them to spread is an interesting question. Lots of people have wondered whether, for instance, sexually transmitted diseases wouldn't benefit by making their um, hosts seek out more sexual partners. Now, the title of your book, is riddled with life, friendly worms, ladybugs, sex, and the parasites that make us who we are. Um, 
the book really does make the case that that in, in a lot of ways parasites have made us, meaning us living creatures, who we are. Absolutely, and like I said, it's not to suggest that you know parasites are good for us or that you know disease is our friend or you know some other kind of gooey new age thing you know about how we should all be out there like oming with our you know pathogens, but that we just wouldn't be who we were if disease hadn't been a part of us. Now, some of the responsibility for this um, overarching idea that uh, parasites have a big role in evolution, uh, and which has gotten a lot of traction in scientific circles, lies with your mentor, W.D. Hamilton. Right. Tell me a little bit about him and, and what he contributed to this line of thinking. Now, he originally was interested in the question of, you know, why is there sex, like I was talking about before, being what um, another evolutionary biologist referred to as the queen of all problems in evolutionary biology. Um, and so he started with that and was, being, was interested in parasites, and then he just started seeing the effects of parasites everywhere. I started working with him specifically on this issue about mate choice and sexual selection and whether traits like um, peacock tails could be the reflection of disease resistance. Um, but he he was someone who just thought parasites could af affect a lot of things in life besides just, you know, the, the few things we had already thought they did. He was known as something of an eccentric genius. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I think in the sense that he was someone who was never afraid to think about an idea, even if it was unpopular or seemed kind of bizarre. Um, and he also combined very, very well, and I think this really is the key to, to the genius that he possessed, he combined a very deep understanding of natural history, in other words, just going out there and understanding what animals and plants are like with the more theoretical part of science. And I think sometimes that we're losing that a little bit now because, you know, children are not as encouraged to, you know, go and potter around in nature, and so instead they've got to go to soccer practice or take French or learn to play the trumpet. And so, you know, everything is very structured, and I think he was a big believer in just letting nature tell you what it had to tell you. Uh, we should make it clear that he didn't just think about parasites. I mean, he contributed what are considered some real fundamental ideas in evolutionary theory, like kin selection. Right, and so this idea that I was talking about with respect to the aphids um, committing suicide, and that the, the really key point is whether or not you're surrounded by individuals who share your genes, that applies to lots of acts that are what, what we call altruistic, things that are sacrifices that are, uh, that are bad for you but good for, for somebody else. And that, too, was a huge puzzle in evolutionary biology. And one of the major contributions he made was that, well, it makes a big difference if, in fact, what you do is bad for you but helps others that share your genes. And the, uh, the idea of the selfish gene comes in there. Absolutely. Richard Dawkins' idea that uh, it's not so much what's good for the organism that drives evolution, but what's good for the individual genes. Yeah, and, you know, that, that everything we're doing is, you know, <laughs> going ahead and, you know, spreading our genes, and we're just carrying around, we're just, we're just temporarily housing them, and then they go off, and, and, you know, it's almost a parasitic way of looking at genetic material, too, that, you know, we're housing our genes, and then they go off and kind of are harbored in other people. Getting back to uh, Bill Hamilton, who you studied with at the University of Michigan, he actually died from a parasite, didn't he? Well, he died um, from... Uh, some complications that were associated with him having contracted malaria in the Congo. Um, he didn't really die from the malaria itself, um, but uh, he, he became ill with malaria after, after a trip to the Congo in 2000. 
And I guess he had written before his death about his preferred method of um, burial or, or, I guess, body disposal. He wrote, I will leave a sum in my last will for my body to be carried to Brazil and to these forests. It will be laid out in a manner secure against the possums and the vultures, just as we make our chickens secure. And this great coprophanius beetle will bury me. <laughs> they will enter, will bury, will live on my flesh. And in the shape of their children and mine, I will escape death. No worm for me, nor sordid fly. I will buzz in the dusk like a huge bumblebee. Were you aware of this uh, dream of his to be eaten by beetles? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Although I, I, have to, I have to tell you that, you know, in fact, he's buried um, in uh, Wydham Woods, which is uh, outside of Oxford. Um, and uh, so that, that part, the Brazil part didn't actually come to pass. Um, but uh, I think, you know, that does express his real um, affinity for nature in general, but, but insects in particular, you know, this idea of being reborn, in effect, as a, as a beetle or as, as something that would be born by beetles, I think is very, um, was very characteristic of him. Yeah, these were beetles he studied in the rainforest. That, that he... um, yeah, the, sort of, uh, so they're burying beetles that, that do um, consume flesh, and so, um, which a lot of beetles do. Um, it, it raises for me a question that comes up a lot uh, when I think about parasites after having read your book, which is, where do we end and uh, other life forms begin? A great question, and one that I, I think that people, people think they have the answer to, and I think we should be a little bit more cautious in having one. Um, I don't think the boundary is at all clear. And the big thing for me is that I find having that very blurry boundary exhilarating. I think it's really exciting to think about. I don't think it, it's frightening or um, means somehow that we've you know, compromised our individuality. I think it's wonderful. Well, Marlene Zook, I've really enjoyed talking about what um, I might have considered a creepy subject, but <laughs> now find completely fascinating. <laughs> Thanks so much. Okay, take care. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And Marlene Zook is a professor of biology at UC Riverside. Her book is Riddled with Life, Friendly Worms, Ladybug Sex, and the Parasites that Make Us Who We Are.